This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It wasn't even close. The Republican and Democratic nominees for governor won comfortably in Tuesday's primaries. We are scheduled to sit down with Republican Walker Stapleton tomorrow. He's currently state treasurer. Today, Democrat Jared Polis. If he wins in November, the Boulder congressman would become the first openly gay man to be elected governor in the U.S. We spoke by phone right after his primary victory. Jared, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be on, and I'm honored to be the Democratic nominee for governor. What accomplishment would you hope to achieve, say, in your first 100 days as governor? You know, Governor Hickenlooper leaves a strong legacy with a good economy. I think the next step is really to make it work for everybody and make sure that we stand up and protect everything that makes Colorado special, our public lands, our parks, our open space. We want to move forward with making sure preschool and kindergarten are available for every child. And of course, you know, whether you're a Republican or independent or a Democrat, when you're stuck in traffic, you want a governor that's going to do something about it. And I'm excited to have a very specific transportation plan, including our plan for Front Range Rail. In your first 100 days, you'd hope to achieve all that. Well, we have to start the groundwork of getting it done, Ryan, right? Uh, It doesn't get done by itself. The first 100 days will include the legislative session. uh, And, of course, we plan to make some progress on all of those issues during that first legislative session. Uh, A victory in November may very well depend on convincing unaffiliateds and maybe some Republicans to vote for you. Uh, Briefly, how do you sway them? First of all, I'm very excited that we've been talking to unaffiliated voters since day one of this campaign, because thankfully the voters of the state now allow independent voters to participate in these primary elections. And we've had hundreds of events hearing from thousands of voters, including independent voters across the state. Now we're also taking the case to moderate Republicans or to Republicans that may approve of some of the things that President Trump is doing, but don't want a governor that's beholden to him. I can certainly work with anybody, including President Trump, to move Colorado forward, but I'm in no way beholden to Trump. And when I disagree, I'm not afraid to say it. Is your implication there that Walker Stapleton is beholden to Trump? Well, if you look at Walker Stapleton's ads, all he does is talk about how he completely agrees with Trump. And I think what Colorado wants is a governor that will agree with Trump if he's doing something good for Colorado and will take a stand against President Trump if he's coming after something we cherish, like our public lands, which are an important part of our identity as Coloradans and also an important economic driver of all the jobs in the outdoor tourism and recreation industry. So Walker Stapleton, the Republican nominee for governor, uh, in his uh, victory speech, made it pretty clear what his line of attack is going to be against you. He said, Jared Polis will raise your taxes and fees at every opportunity. That's a a rough uh, paraphrasing, but the idea is fundamentally that taxpayers are going to be paying more under a Jared Polis administration. Will they? Well, first of all, it shows his naivete in the fact that the only people who can or even raise taxes in Colorado or the voters of the state. It's not part of the job description of governor, so he might not fully understand what a governor does. Second of all, we don't have any specific uh, tax increases in our plans. In fact, we would love a way to help provide relief, for instance, to homeowners and seniors that have had appreciation in, uh, in their homes, have seen their appraised values go up and their taxes have gone up. We think we can do more to actually address that so people can stay in their homes with a rising cost of real estate. Uh, Of course, a governor can raise fees, and there are fees that uh, have gone forward without the popular vote. Will those increase under a Jared Polis administration? We don't have any specific plans to. I think part of what is important for Colorado is keeping it affordable. And 
that means more money in your pocket, right? So if we can help people who've had appreciation in their homes with their residential assessments going up uh, to have some relief on their taxes, that's a good thing. If we can provide relief to the middle class and help people keep more of their paycheck, that's also a good thing because right now people are spending too much on health care, whether it's for prescription drugs or for insurance. So our goal is for families to have more disposable money to spend on the things that they enjoy, raising their families, higher education, and having fun in beautiful Colorado. If you want families to have more money uh, and you also want to reverse the Trump tax cuts, uh, how do you square those two? Uh, This is something that Walker Stapleton has hit you on. You introduced a bill, in fact, in Congress to reverse the tax cuts. This is the absurd thing with the Trump corporate tax giveaway is, you know, Republicans talk all the time about cutting taxes. They don't even know how to do it. You think they'd at least be good at it. They did it in such a convoluted way that it actually raises taxes for many middle-class Colorado families because of the elimination of itemized deductions. So, yes, some families pay a little less under the Trump plan and some families pay a little bit more. But it is in no way, shape or form a tax cut for the middle class. What our proposal was is instead to provide relief for student loan debt. In fact, for the cost of the Republican corporate tax giveaway, we could wipe out all of the student debt in the country and make college more affordable and reduce our deficit or even cut taxes for the middle class. Candidates do a lot of talking on the campaign trail, Jared Polis. I'd like you to tell me about a moment on this campaign in which you listened to a voter and perhaps changed your mind on an issue. You know, this has been, and as will the campaign going forward, a campaign of listening. And I've heard from tens of thousands of voters firsthand. And what I learn about, frankly, are a lot of the local issues in each community. Where is the traffic? What's the issue with the schools? It'll make me a better governor, and it's also made me a better person to hear about the pain and the loss that many Colorado families have gone through, including families who've lost loved ones to the opioid crisis. You have uh, largely self-funded your campaign to the tunes of millions of dollars. Have you arrived at at a figure that you're willing to spend uh, into the general, and and would you share it with us? You know, I'm excited that we have over 4,000 donors to this campaign. And you know what we've done? We're not taking any donations from uh, individuals above $100, no corporate money, no PAC money. And what that means is I won't be beholden to anybody but the people of this state standing up to the pharmaceutical industry to save money on prescription drugs, making sure that we get the best deal when we build infrastructure because I'm not beholden to contractors. So I think that's an important contrast in this election, and we certainly plan on continuing to have as many small donors as we can. How much are you willing to spend of your own money on the race? Again, I think that what voters want to see is a candidate and a governor that can be independent from the special interests. When I'm making decisions about roads and infrastructure, they'll know that I won't have to go with buddies who paved the way for my campaign. I'm able to have over, you know, 250 free grassroots events across the country, hearing from real people, rather than having dinner at a Denver steakhouse with 10 millionaires every night. So you won't answer the question of how much you're willing to spend? Well, again, we have a people-powered campaign with over 4,000 individual contributors. Frankly, my goal would be to double that. What is one attribute of Walker Stapleton? One attribute? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know him well enough to know much about his attributes. I certainly know his policies are the wrong way for Colorado. He doesn't have any plans to make health care more affordable. He doesn't have any plans to help families stay in their homes with the rising costs of, uh, of housing. Uh, he doesn't have any plans that I've seen to improve our schools. So we plan on running you know, on a bold, optimistic vision of how we can make Colorado work even better for those of us who live here. Jared Polis, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan.
Democrat Jared Polis won his party's nomination for governor. We are scheduled to sit down with the Republican nominee, Walker Stapleton, tomorrow. When we come back, analysis of some of the other important races that shaped up Tuesday. And we hear how Colorado's grand experiment went, allowing unaffiliated voters to have a voice in these primaries. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's get some analysis of Tuesday's primaries and look forward to November. I'm joined by two longtime Colorado politicos. Dick Wadhams is former chair of the state Republican Party. Ellen Dumb is a Democratic communications consultant specializing in ballot issues this season. Welcome to you both. Nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. The Republican and Democratic nominees for governor wasted no time in launching their attacks against each other. Uh, This is from Republican Walker Stapleton's victory speech less than two hours after the polls closed. Jared Polis supports a government takeover of your health care. As your governor, I will tackle our health care problems with common sense solutions, not more government and higher taxes. Because in Colorado, we know we can do better, and we must. And here is Democrat Jared Polis echoing uh, what he told us before the break. On almost every question before us this election, from whether or not health care is a human right, to whether immigrant children deserve human decency and human rights, to even the basic question about whether or not honesty is important in the public sphere... Walker Stapleton comes out on the wrong side, and the people of Colorado know that. Okay, this was a historic election for Colorado because it was the first time unaffiliated voters could participate in a primary. I heard all along that that was supposed to, in some ways, soften or bring to the center the kinds of candidates that would emerge from a (laughs) primary. Uh, But here you have Jared Polis, who wants Medicare for all and free full day preschool and kindergarten and Walker Stapleton, who's repeatedly aligned himself with President Trump. Did the unaffiliateds have that softening force, Dick? No. In fact, I've always thought, uh, Ryan, that that, uh, there there are truly moderate and and middle ground uh, unaffiliated voters. But I've also believed that a lot of unaffiliated voters uh, are unaffiliated because they they're they're liberals who think the Democratic Party is too conservative, <laughs> or they're conserv- they're really far right Repub- uh, far right, and they think the Republican Party is too liberal, and so they just went to their respective corners uh-huh. in this election. I do think it is significant that uh, more unaffiliated voters chose to cast Democratic ballots. And I think that that is an indication of uh, intensity for Democrats this time. It, could that just be, though, the dynamics of the race, that there were more and stronger candidates on the Democratic side? Or you you think that's about Democratic energy? Uh, I, I Unfortunately, I think it is Democratic energy to some extent. OK. Ellen, what's your assessment of the role unaffiliateds did or did not play in perhaps bringing a a, a centralizing quality. I, in this regard, agree very much with what Dick had to say. Um, I don't believe just because you're unaffiliated, you're a moderate. And numerous studies have borne that out. I I think that what will be interesting, and I I don't understand the strategy of the Walker-Stapleton campaign, he has lashed himself to the USS Trump. And we have seen a poll recently that says seven out of 10 unaffiliated voters 
think that Trump's doing a lousy job. That doesn't even count the 10 out of 10 Democrats who know he's doing a lousy job. So I don't see the numbers. A treasurer should be better at numbers. So I don't understand the strategy here in at a, all. In a state uh, that Hillary Clinton won uh, with a pretty safe margin, is it a dangerous strategy to uh, attach yourself to the USS Trump, as Helen says? There? You know, I, I really believe one of the things we we're seeing in this election is the polarization of both parties more than we've ever seen before. I mean, do you think that's reflected in these candidates? I do. I think, in fact, um, Jared Polis clearly is more liberal than any previous Democratic governor. I mean, the the era of Dick Lamb, Roy Romer, John Hickenlooper is over. I mean, if if uh, uh, if he becomes governor, he is far beyond any, even Alan Salazar, who's a very respected Democratic uh, uh, leader and operative, who's worked for a lot of Democratic elected officials, has said that he never would have seen. John Hickenlooper proposed the vast expansion of, of programs that, that uh, uh, Polis wants. But, but conversely, the Republican uh, primary process has gotten more polarized to the right. And do you think that's reflected in Walker Stapleton? I do. The, the, the kind of can- Now, I don't think Walker Stapleton has been a hardcore conservative his entire life, but I do think that he moved his campaign that direction. Somebody's going to have to come and, and talk to those people because there is a middle ground. And uh, they do sway elections. Bill Owens was successful in doing that in 98. That's how you win an election in Colorado. Back to that question of aligning yourself with Mm -hmm. President Trump in Colorado. What do you what do you make of that strategy? Do you think I, I guess what I'm hearing you say is that you think that might be the primary strategy, but not a general election you strategy? Know, the, the, the truth is, is that he's immensely popular among Republican primary voters. And so you certainly couldn't be in opposition to President Trump. Uh, so um, uh, what Walker Stapleton did, he almost had to do. Uh, same thing with Polis. I think he had to talk to that liberal wing of the Democratic Party in order to win. And you could see the other candidates in the Democratic primary, Ryan, also move that direction. I mean, he he really drove the debate in the Democratic primary. So do we see two new candidates emerge now uh, into the general, Ellen? I Yes, I think you will. Uh, I would argue, although I think that Trump is a much harder stain to remove uh, moving forward. I think that what you'll see with Jared and what he's done his entire career is uh, he's an innovator. We've spent the last decade trying to bring in innovators to Colorado to help the economy. He does think more like a businessman than I think people give him credit for. And he has excellent people around him. He put together a nearly flawless campaign and did not have the oops moments that um, Walker Stapleton did. And, And Walker did stumble many times. You are nodding your head in approval, it seems, to Quadams. Well, I, I think the Stapleton campaign, I do think, needs to be much sharper in the general election. Uh, you, you can't uh, take away the fact that he won the nomination by a very substantial margin. He had one opponent that outspent him. So uh, listen, uh, Walker did a lot of right things to win a primary. But uh, Ellen is is correct. I think if if Walker is going to win this general election, he has got to have a much sharper and more disciplined campaign. What's an example of the lack of discipline? Do you think? Oh, I. Uh, for one thing, the petitions. He, the, well, I, I would give him a pass on that because having gone through the petition process, it's a mess. You, you can, yeah, I, I would give him a pass. But on that, that one was a particular yeah. mess. But, 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 but for instance, not doing the debates, uh, the, he missed two of the four debates in, in the uh, primary. Um, you've got to be able to do debates. They matter in a general election, I believe. And you've got to be able to stand there and defend your campaign. 
We are getting perspective on the primaries and the road to November with two longtime Colorado political consultants on the Republican side, Dick Wadhams, and on the Democratic side, Ellen Dumm. Uh, I want to talk about issues uh, with this race in particular, the governor's race. Where do you think the battle lines will be drawn issue-wise, Ellen? Well, I think they've outlined them pretty carefully in the primary. I don't think the issues themselves will be significantly different. Mm. Uh, those that really hit home are health care and education. Uh, we import most of the people with high educa- with a high level of education for our economy. We have got to start investing in education, and that's a very important. Through his career, Jared Polis has been active in education and has um, put his a lot of work into what he ha- has done in Congress and also on the ground with schools. So I think you're going to see a lot of education issues. Dick? Well, I was interested in the civics lesson that Polis gave us about uh, governors don't raise taxes, and he's technically correct. But you can't propose a vast expansion of uh, state programs like full uh, full day kindergarten and pre-K and uh, universal health care without coming to the table and saying, where are you going to raise taxes? How are you going to pay for this? And uh, so he can he can give us a civics lesson, but he's got to come forward and say how he's going to do that. And um, he hasn't done that yet. I think Walker Stapleton has a real door that he can walk through with uh, Polis because Polis got away with that in Democratic primary. He can't in a general election. Although it, I would say that at least he has an agenda and we haven't really heard one from Walker. Well, uh, Ellen, you, you are correct. I, I think one of the reasons why Bill Owens became governor, he had a very specific agenda to cut taxes, improve education, and reform edu- and reform transportation. And uh, you, in a governor's race, you have to have that. And I am looking forward to, to Walker doing that. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned transportation because Jared Polis has said he would be supportive of a potential tax increase on the ballot that the business community appears to be uh, floating for this election. Walker Stapleton, on the other hand, has said that this can be achieved through bonding, for instance. Uh, This is an issue that a lot of Coloradans deal with. They're stuck in traffic in an election year. Uh, Do you think that Walker Stapleton can convince his supporters, you can you can change this, you can make commutes easier and you don't have to pay more for it? No, I think frankly, I think Walker should make that the centerpiece of his campaign. Uh, This uh, monstrosity that is going on the ballot by the Denver Chamber of Commerce and others is not going to sell with the with the people of Colorado. Uh, We've seen this before. These the reason why Bill Owens There's a long history of statewide uh, tax increases on the ballot failing. There is. And the one that did pass was the trans program by Governor Owens in 1999. And the reason it passed, Ryan, is because it was very specific to, to specific highways it wasn't a slush fund for local governments like this one is, and uh, and it didn't raise taxes. I'll say that uh, Polis is also supportive of high-speed rail, particularly along the Front Range. Ellen, weigh in here. I think transportation is a very important issue. We have been dealing with this. I was on Senate state Senate staff in 2002 when we were, we were arguing these same issues. It just keeps coming back. And it may be that we have to do this on a local level and not be able to do it on a statewide level. Uh, we'll have to see where the the voters' minds are this fall. Let's talk about an issue that both of these gubernatorial candidates mentioned in their speeches uh, last night. Their language was, in fact, very similar when they talked about the economy. You'll hear Polis first, then Stapleton. We'll build an economy that works for everyone in every part of our state. And we will offer Colorado a hopeful economic vision for all of our children. Uh, but they would achieve that very differently. Ellen? 
That's true. I think we are going to see a very distinct um, line between these two. Uh, I think um, Jared Polis lines up better with Colorado values at this point. We have seen a lot of people move here in the last decade and a half. And what we see are people who are very innovative and creative. And I think his values now line up very carefully with those. Now, at the same time... His values line up with with transplants? Is that what I hear you saying? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that we have changed. I have lived here all my life. Uh And I think Colorado has changed. We have built an economy. But as I mentioned, a lot of that is imported. So what we have to do is we can't um, divide between native and uh, transplants. We have to be one state. And I think that our state right now is a very innovative, forward-looking state, and I think those values line up with Jared Polis, especially on the economy. Dick, weigh in on this question. Uh, I, I, I was very interested in, in Polis's comments about the uh, Trump tax cut because I think he's dead wrong. And if that becomes part of the debate, I think Tr- Polis will lose that argument. Um, this notion that it raised taxes on middle-income taxpayers is just plain wrong. And uh, if he wants to get pulled into that debate – I think he's going to lose. There were two female candidates on the Democratic side, the former state treasurer, Kerry Kennedy, and the current lieutenant governor, Donna Lynn. Kennedy only got 25 percent of the vote. Lynn, 7 percent. That was striking to me, given that she's the current lieutenant governor. This is in a year when women have overwhelmingly been winning primaries across the country. I mean, in fact, Time magazine reported some interesting numbers, not counting Tuesday. In Democratic primaries around the country where there was no incumbent, women have gotten the most votes 71 percent of the time. Why didn't Kennedy and Lynn do better? That is a very good question. It's one that uh, we've been struggling with for a very long time. Colorado has a long history of supporting women. We gave women the right to vote in 1893, first to give women the right to vote by ballot. We have supported women for a very long time. so I don't know why we haven't elected a female. It, it, it is a little baffling. There to has me. never been a female governor of Colorado. No, we're one of 22 states that has not had a female. Or a female I, senator. Right. Yeah. And I will say this. There is, I think, in the year of the woman, another opportunity in Colorado, and that will be in the state Senate. There are some very good, and I'm going to forget some folks, but on the Democratic side, Tammy Story, Carrie Donovan, um, Brittany Pedersen and uh, Jesse Danielson, all in the Senate, all in very swing states. And and they will be key to, as to whether or not Democrats take the state Senate this could, year. Could it have had something to do with how much money Polis has? Sure. And I think that um, the campaign finance debate is a whole different topic for a whole different show. Uh-huh. And we can come back and do that. Um, okay. Dick Wadhams, I want to talk just briefly about congressional races. No real upsets in the primaries. No. I mean, Incumbency Doug, has its advantages, apparently. It, it, it does. And, and Doug Lamborn, I think I think this is the first time he's ever gotten over 50 percent in these primaries he's had over the years. With as many people running against him. Four, four opponents, uh, two uh, sub, uh, substantive ones. Uh, so it appears to me Doug Lamborn has solidified his hold on the 5th District. I can't imagine why anybody would challenge him again. All eyes will be, though, on the 6th District in Aurora, the eastern and southern suburbs of Denver. It seems every year people say incumbent Republican Mike Kaufman is in danger. 
This year, his Democratic opponent will be Jason Crow, a former Army Ranger. That gets right at Kaufman's own experience as a military veteran, a supporter of veterans' issues. Is Kaufman more in trouble than usual? I have given up any kind of prediction okay, in, in the CD6. <laughs> I think Jason Crow is a very uh, attractive candidate. He uh, he has all the goods, and it is a very uh, democratic year, I think. So if he can't do it this year, I'm not sure it can get done. You know, I read the other day, Ryan, that the Ethiopian community within the 6th District honored Mike Kaufman as their man of the year. And it really drives home how he embeds himself with those very diverse communities within that district. He doesn't just show up at a festival and, hand, and shake hands for a few uh, minutes. Uh, Mike, uh, he could be a model for every Republican across the country, frankly, the way he does things. Very, very quickly, I want to talk about the attorney general's primary before we go. So on the Democratic side, uh, this was a race between Phil Weiser a former dean at the CU Law School and state representative Joe Salazar. Uh, as of this morning, Weiser has a slight lead. I think in many ways this race um, uh, captures something about the Democratic Party right now, sort of the Hillary wing of the party versus uh, the Bernie wing of the party. Ellen, I understand that you, you, you've heard it's not close enough for a recount. Uh, that's what I heard. Uh, I talked to Judge Shope before we came. We were just looking the Secretary at... Secretary of State's office. Yes, and we were um, looking at some of the very close races. He didn't think that there were any that would be close enough for a recount. I would say that this was one of those that were being carefully watched because it, it was going to demonstrate whether or not the, the Democratic Party was going to go too far left. Uh, I would congratulate the Weiser campaign for a, an incredible ad where they had Ken Salazar in the ad uh, to make that separation somehow. Former U.S. Senator. Yes. So a lot of people think that Joe is related to Ken and and uh, that is not the case. So I, I thought that was a brilliant way to, to say it. Very briefly. My only criticism, they should have had Ken Salazar at a 30-second ad saying that. Ken's a very popular guy. All right. Thanks so much to Dick Wadhams, former chairman of the state Republican Party. Ellen Dumb is a Democratic political consultant reflecting on the road to November. This is Colorado Matters. Tuesday's primaries were the first time that unaffiliated voters were allowed to participate. These voters got both Democratic and Republican ballots and had to return one or the other, not something everyone understood. According to the Secretary of State's office, more than 300,000 ballots cast in the primaries came from unaffiliateds. We caught up with a few of them as they dropped off their ballots. One woman, Ava from Aurora, she didn't want to use her last name, said she had mixed feelings about allowing unaffiliateds like herself to vote. I think it's nice that everybody gets to participate. On the other hand, if you're not willing to uh, support a particular party, should you really get to vote in that party's elections? She told us that she at least thought about using her vote more as a way to interfere in a party's primary. It did cross my mind to vote against the candidate in the party that I wanted to least have um, the nominee, but I felt like that was cheating. So I felt like I had to pick the party that I had a stronger pro-feeling for than a negative. I just didn't feel like that was the right, right way to do this. Another unaffiliated voter from Aurora, Lori Gallegos, 
said she did lots of research on candidates from both parties, and it made her worry. What if she liked a Democrat in one race, but a Republican in another? Yeah, I was wondering about that. It worked out this time, so I probably would have sided with the governor. I mean, if I had a governor with one and somebody else with another, I would have probably gone with the governor, the biggest job. John Kudlinski of Denver has been unaffiliated for a decade. His rationale is simple. I don't believe in either party. That's at least I don't like the direction of either party because both parties fib, lie, uh, and are for their own gain. And obviously they forgot about the people that vote for them. So Kudlinski held his nose and tried to find candidates in the primary he didn't think were beholden to special interests. I want to use my right as a citizen to be able to vote, even though there's no independent candidates. But at least as an independent, at least I feel that's my right as an American. Now, there will be independent candidates in the general election. Finally, Ryan Brooks of Denver says he's also been leery of candidates from both parties. All the people that's going right now is really like, eh. so, you know, <laughs> it's hard to decide to who's really good to really to vote for. So how did he decide? More people that's really for the community, that's really for the school system, that's for the neighborhood, that's going to benefit the neighborhood and not pour out what we worked hard for the neighborhood. Right, the voices of unaffiliated voters who, for the first time in Colorado history, were allowed to cast a primary ballot. So how did that experiment go? Well, Colorado's director of elections joins us. He's Judd Choate. Hi, Judd. Hi. Unaffiliated voters are the largest voting bloc in the state, 1.2 million, larger than Democrats, larger than Republicans. How much did they participate? Well, as of last night, late last night, uh, we had about 281,000 unaffiliated voters who had voted, uh, which was around 23 percent. We anticipate that we'll add 20 to 25,000 more of those ballots in the next day or two as counties process their uh, late returns. So indeed, surpassing 300,000. Does that surprise you? Is that healthy turnout? Can we give us some context here? So in past primaries, uh, the overall primary turnout has been around 25%. So for the unaffiliated voters to vote at about 25% is quite good. Our pr- overall turnout for this election is looking like it's going to be in the 36, 37, maybe 38% range, which will be a very good turnout for um, a primary in the state of Colorado. All right. So are you impressed, surprised? What is your feeling waking up and seeing the numbers? I I think that this pretty much holds with what we thought we'd see. Huh. We, we thought we'd see around 20% or so unaffiliated turnout. And uh, we're above that. So uh, maybe a little bit better than we anticipated. As we established a bit earlier in the hour, it seems that unaffiliateds voted uh, more often in the Democratic primary than the Republican. You're confirming that for us? Yeah, that's right. So again, according to last night's numbers, of those ballots that had been processed, they were almost two to one Democrat. So huh. 140,000 to 85,000 for Republicans. Okay. Unaffiliated's got two ballots in the mail, and the Secretary of State's office had a huge education campaign that essentially said, throw one of the ballots out. I know you've probably never done that before. Tear up a ballot and throw it out, and only mail one back. Uh, Reports for sure that people uh, sent in two ballots and thus invalidated their votes. What was the scale of that mistake? 
So again, according to last night's numbers, about 5,100 people have returned ballots where they voted both ballots. So they've returned both ballots and both ballots are voted. So because of that, uh, neither one of those ballots could be counted. So uh, those uh, ballots were rejected and they spoiled their opportunity to vote in that election. More than 5,000 Coloradans. That's right. Their votes won't be counted. Is that enough to sway races? I'm just curious. Well, of course, in a smaller race, that absolutely could sway a turnout or uh, an outcome. But um, uh, statewide with the larger races, probably not. Okay. Is that about what you expected? I mean, you had a multi-million dollar education campaign. Is is fifty one hundred mistakes good, bad, uh, what? Well, any ballot that was attempted to be cast that we couldn't count is obviously disappointing. We want to try to give vote credit to anyone who's made an attempt to vote. So that's disappointing. However, if you if you think about it, sort of uh, from a larger scale, for the number of ballots that were cast by unaffiliated. We're really talking about somewhere around 2%, maybe 2.1, 2.2% of the ballots cast by unaffiliateds will not be counted because they attempted to vote both ballots. So uh, that spoilage rate is really comparable, maybe mm. even a little bit better than some of the other states which have used this method, like Washington State. I know that ballots differed uh, in terms of how they were printed, their look from county to county. So my ballot in Denver didn't look the same as a ballot even in an adjacent county. Should there be some uniformity? Is there better language that could be printed on a ballot or some sort of better system that would bring down that rate even further? So great question. And I think what we're going to need to do after this election is go back and try to figure out the best practices for this kind of election, because this kind of election is a very special way of doing an election, something that we as a state have never done before. So we saw counties where there were higher percentages of spoilage and counties where there were lower percentages of spoilage. So presumably you would look at that. That's right. And you would say the counties with the highest, what what did they do or not do? Well, and and some of that's about ballot content. So we may have very well had uh, counties where uh, both the Republican and Democratic ballots were very competitive and very competitive down the ballot. Uh-huh. And so a constituent of that particular county may look at that ballot and go, gosh, I want to vote both of those races and not understand that they can't. Uh, you also might have a constituency within a particular county that is much more sort of moderate and not uh, polared, uh, as as Dick Wadhams was saying earlier, where where the unaffiliateds are really members of the parties. They're just hiding behind the definition of unaffiliated. So you're saying that there are forces beyond just the the sort of style of the ballot or the the fonts uh, that could be adding to this. Absolutely. A, a kind of enthusiasm. But it also could be construction of the ballot. And so all of those are factors we need to follow up on. Can you say where the high, highest spoilage rate was? The highest spoilage rate among a, a populous county, a county that has a lot of voters, uh, was El Paso County at about 5%. So 5% of the unaffiliated return in El Paso County had to be spoiled because they returned both uh, voted ballots. Okay. Any idea why? Uh, not Still yet. too early. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of the other metro counties were in the 1.5 to 2, 2.5 range. So it's a pretty big jump to the El Paso number. So we're going to have to uh, sort of dig into that to try to better understand it. Could there be lawsuits around this? 
Absolutely. We okay. could have <laughs> um, we get sued a lot at the Secretary of State's office. So we we understand that uh, the things that we do, the decisions we make, the laws that we enforce um, draw the attention of a lot of groups and individuals. So uh, we could have people that could be upset by this. And, and if so, we'll defend them in court. A listener, Chris Nichols of Boulder, pardon me, Nicholson, uh, tweeted me saying that the right ballot system for unaffiliated, in his mind, is just to print one with all the candidates and let voters choose which primary they want to vote in for any given office. Uh, this was obviously spelled out in law, how the primaries would move forward. But could, could that be changed? Do you think it might be changed? Well, so it's a very interesting topic. Um, the original language of 107-108 specified that they should be on one ballot and only gave a relaxation to that under extraordinary circumstances. Uh, then the legislature got involved with 305, with Senate Bill 305, and they um, eliminated the joint ballot, the single ballot option, and and instructed counties to go with dual ballots. And because 107-108 uh, were statutes, um, statutory change instead of constitutional change, ah. that that meant that the legislature could come in and make those changes. So we, based on that law, um, instructed the counties to use two ballots. That could be changed, therefore. Absolutely. Talk, talk to your representative might be the the advice. Yeah, the I, I think the thinking behind the legislature at the time was that um, there had been experiments with a single ballot in other states that had shown a higher spoilage rate uh-huh. because people would struggle to understand that one side of the ballot and the other side of the ballot couldn't be jointly voted. So uh, one of the ideas was that the legislature was trying to actually reduce spoilage. Very quickly, any signs of hacking? No, not no. at all. Okay. That's good. I mean, that's good. Yeah, we're we're really <laughs> pleased, and honestly, we had a great election in sixteen when there were other problems uh, across the country, but um, but we experienced no problems, and we didn't have any this this time either. Thanks for being with us. No problem, Judge Chote. He's Colorado's director of elections. Many have been touched by the stories of parents and children separated at the southern border in recent weeks. For one asylum seeker in Colorado, the situation brings back painful memories of her own experience entering the United States. CPR's Allison Sherry has her story. This woman says she is speaking out now because she's been anguished by what she's seen on the news lately. Her asylum case is still pending, so CPR News has agreed not to use her name or exact location. She works in housekeeping at a hotel in a Colorado mountain town. Her lawyer, Ashley Harrington, is with the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. She fled to the United States from El Salvador in April of 2016 because of very real and credible death threats against her and her daughter and because of real horrific violence uh, that they had suffered in El Salvador. Harrington won't go into the details of the woman's case, but says they had good reason to believe that the police would not protect them in El Salvador. The woman and her daughter had a dangerous journey through Mexico that included 24 hours out on a boat. When they got to the U.S. border just a mile or so from Texas, the woman was told she would be separated from her daughter. At that time, under the Obama administration, families caught crossing the border illegally were generally detained together or released pretrial under some kind of supervision program. 
However, officials said that parents and children were sometimes separated, if there were doubts they were related, or if there was no room in family holding centers. The woman says she was in custody for 20 days in the U.S. before she was even able to speak to her daughter on the phone. And that was only after the woman begged and pleaded and cried to detention center officials. One took pity on her and tracked down her daughter, who was in a children's holding facility. She said while in detention, she didn't eat and considered suicide she was so worried about her daughter. The girl spent a month in a youth facility before the government located her grandparents in Colorado and sent her to them. The woman says despite her fraught arrival to the United States, she is still safer living here than she would be in El Salvador. She believes she and her daughter would be killed if they return. It will be another two years before a court considers the woman's asylum claim. Until then, she says she's trying to create a normal life for her and her daughter. They go on walks and to the pool and visit her grandparents. After that month of separation, the girl is quieter than she used to be and more fearful. But she is excelling in school. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Heritage Amusement Park in Golden will close for good this weekend. The park and its carnival-style rides have hobbled along since the larger Heritage Square closed a few years ago. When it was dedicated in 1958, owners envisioned a park as big as Disneyland. In fact, some of its designers and architects had had a hand in Disneyland. Richard Gardner is a historian from Golden. We spoke about Heritage Square's colorful past back in 2015. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. The original name of Heritage Square was Magic Mountain. Describe what visitors saw when it opened. They saw what was uh, the second theme park uh, anywhere outside of uh, Disneyland. Uh, When you first uh, went in uh, beneath the entrance railroad trestle, you'd uh, enter into the uh, cavalry area full of uh, log buildings representing the frontier. And from there, uh, the main street, uh, Centennial City, which was uh, the storybook Victorian downtown, and there are other attractions around the place as well, and you could ride the uh, narrow-gauge Magic Mountain Railroad around it. Their vision included an expanded park, though, correct? Well, it was uh, very much based on the Disneyland uh, model, and uh, Marco Engineering, who was hired by uh, Magic uh, Mountain, uh, was headed by the original uh, Disneyland uh, vice president, uh, C.V. Wood Jr., who had hired many of the uh, Disney and other Hollywood artisans to design and create it for Magic Mountain. Do you remember the first time you went? Actually, no, no. <laughs> uh, because uh, I was zero years old at the time. My uh, uh, The picture shows my father uh, pulling tiny me in a uh, sled at uh, what's now the Garden Grill place. Oh, I see. Uh, there were plans for a land of the dinosaurs, a magic mine ride as well? Yes, Those were to be in the fairgrounds, which one building got built of that. (laughs) Something of a truncated vision. The park fell on hard times, closed in 1967, with most of those grand visions incomplete. So what remains of the original Magic Mountain? What remains of the original is the heart of it. The uh, storybook uh, Victorian downtown Centennial City 
is all there. The uh, five storybook style buildings are all there, uh, the, which are the Main Street and uh, the Victorian Event Center. The really, really important part of it. And uh, one of the cavalry area buildings still stands. That's the stockade, uh, the log fronted uh, part of that. The lake is still there. Uh, Spider Mansion was the one building of the uh, fairgrounds that was built. And the railroad, that's the uh, uh, second uh, theme park railroad anywhere. Spider Mansion? Yes, that's up on the uh, hill. The haunted house, which couldn't get to run this year because the water main broke, unfortunately. Hmm. Are these buildings in danger? I mean, the question of what happens to them going forward is a big one, I imagine, for you. Yes. goal is uh, to uh, preserve uh, as much about uh, what's important about it as uh, possible. The uh, five-storybook-style buildings uh, are uh, very likely eligible for the National Historic Register. Hmm. And uh, those uh, were the ones where the most Hollywood artistry uh, went into. And, uh, yeah, there are a number of... uh, uh, elements of the Magic Mountain Park that uh, still remain there, and it would be important to save as many as uh, possible. It is not necessary to save the whole park at all. In fact, a lot of it is just uh, knockoff 80s era's edition. Okay. It's uh, the heart of the place. Yeah, and you talk, and, you talk, you talk about the kind of Hollywood um, creatives who were a part of this. I mean, these were set designers and art directors who worked on films like Around the World in 80 Days and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, even Singing in the Rain. Yes, the uh, art directors who uh, led the team to design uh, Magic Mountain, uh, those were Wade Rubottom and Dick Kelsey. Uh, Wade Rubottom had worked at MGM, and uh, he was associate art director for the Philadelphia story. Dick Kelsey was Disney's art director for the films such as Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, The Rite of Spring Segment, and Fantasia. Huh. And uh, the whole design team had worked on various films. Who knew? And it was right here in Colorado. Why do you think it didn't succeed in the long run? Well... It's uh, interesting going through all the owners, though something that is a recurrent pattern through its history is that it has uh, owners who are involved uh, with other things in ways uh, distracted, so to speak, Hmm. and uh, couldn't uh, focus entirely on the uh, place like uh, Magic Mountain itself failed because it had a uh, financier uh, brought on who turned out was (laughs) not so great and had other intrigues, uh, though that was not the fault of its founders. Um, And... The Woodmore Corporation, who revived it as Heritage Square, uh, it did not go under because of Heritage Square. It was involved in real estate elsewhere, and Woodmore went under uh, because of uh, other things. And this has happened throughout its history. It'd be nice if it uh, had someone who could really focus on the place. Alas, not the case. That's Richard Gardner, historian from Golden. We spoke in 2015 about the colorful past of Heritage Amusement Park, It closes permanently Saturday. The original park, Magic Mountain, was designed by many of the people who'd had a hand in creating Disneyland. Finally today, music from a unique Colorado venue. This is a recording of Denver trumpeter Ron Miles, made in an old water tank near Rangeley on the western slope. The tank is about 65 feet high with metal walls that trap sound, and it gives this space acoustics similar to a cathedral's. 
The tank has hosted Grammy winners like the singers in Roomful of Teeth, as well as students from Rangeley who also make music there. The venue also hosts performances around the summer solstice, and this year's event took place last weekend and indeed featured a concert by Ron Miles. To borrow a phrase, that's your moment of zen. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters from CPR News.